The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Neuromatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's Disease. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and this program is about Alzheimer's disease and the dementias, and we are coming to you from Voice America. We are um, going to go in a little bit different direction tonight in comparison to previous programs. We are going to, with great trepidation, move into the interface of science and politics. I know that uh, the interface of science and politics is seldom a pleasant experience. It's seldom a pleasant interface, but we are going to take a try at it and see whether we can have a good discussion about this. And the reason that I wanted to go into this area is a news item that I read yesterday. And the opening statement of the news item said, approximately 99.6% of Alzheimer's disease drug trials are unsuccessful, according to new research from the Cleveland Clinic. The primary author in that research uh, was Dr. Jeffrey L. Cummings, who is the director of the Cleveland Clinic Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health. Uh, Dr. Uh, Cummings has been a very active researcher in clinical aspects of Alzheimer's disease for many years, at least 30 that I can recall, but I don't want to uh, give his age away. And he is widely respected. And he made some statements based on a review of data from clinicaltrials.gov. Now, clinicaltrials.gov is a website that keeps track of ongoing drug trials with respect to a wide, wide range of diseases and conditions. And as far as Alzheimer's disease research is concerned, if you ever want to see a complete listing of funded uh, drug trials, the place to go to clinicaltrials, all one word, dot gov, and you can find the information that you are looking for there. Well, Dr. Cummings reviewed drug trials from 2002 to 2012, and he found that 244 different drugs had been tested during that time, and only one drug tested successfully. And he um, pointed to how remarkable this statistic is in terms of the task that lies before us in developing effective treatments for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, and also in terms of the research funding that goes into that. But uh, again, reading from this article and quoting Dr. Cummings, 
The dramatic message is that Alzheimer's disease drug development is in a disastrous state and we have to change this. Now, Dr. Cummings is not saying anything that a lot of other researchers have been saying, and he makes a very important point. I thought that it might be a good discussion today to talk through why we are where we are, what um, are the conditions and uh, factors that weigh in to lead us to this disaster state right now, and what might we do differently so that we can move forward more efficiently and more effectively in developing drug treatment. So this will be our discussion tonight. I hope that it will be enjoyable to you. So come on in, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and let's enjoy the interface of science and politics on the issue of development of drugs for Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. Let's go over some background statistics that I think for most of you are already um, very apparent. Right now, it is estimated that there are 5.2 million individuals in the United States that have Alzheimer's disease. And by the year 2050, based on, simply on the projection of um, the increase in the number of people who are at the age of greater risk for developing, developing Alzheimer's disease, it is estimated that there will be 15 million people by that year 2050. Currently, about $214 billion now being spent per year for the care of Alzheimer's disease and dementia patients, and this is projected by the year 2050 to be about $1.2 trillion. So when you consider these statistics, this is not an issue that we can just sit on our hands and do nothing. Um, I'm seeing two reactions to these comments by uh, Dr. Cummings. One reaction is, look, we are pouring money into a bottomless pit and we need to stop doing that with our research dollars. And of course, the other reaction is, if we don't have some solutions to uh, impacting very dramatically on the number of cases of Alzheimer's disease and the level of functioning of Alzheimer's disease patients, we are absolutely going to uh, bankrupt our healthcare system especially since we're on the verge of doing that now because of the accumulation of chronic disorders. So these are the two sides of the argument. Are we pouring money into a bottomless pit or is this a necessary investment that uh, needs to be made as far as uh, Alzheimer's drug development research is concerned? When we talk about investing in this, I want to list out four key entities or groups that are involved in funding this type of research. The first, obviously, and the largest is the federal government. And there are lesser expenditures by state governments in uh, some areas as well. But government is the single biggest spender in this group. Private industry, especially the pharmaceutical industry, but uh, areas of neuroimaging and things like that as well, are major spenders in the development of appropriate drug treatments. Third is uh, would be the Alzheimer Association, and fourth, which is somewhat related, charitable organizations and persons more generally. So these are the, the entities that are putting money into the development 
of treatments that will hopefully be effective. And these are the entities that have to be considering the question, are we pouring money into a bottomless pit or are we making necessary expenditures to turn the tide and uh, have a very significant impact both on the well-being of individuals and caregivers of individuals with Alzheimer's and other dementias, as well as the um, general economy and most certainly the healthcare economy. So to attempt to address these issues, I want to drop back to the beginning here and help you, my loyal listeners, to understand how we have come to where we are now in trying to treat these disorders. Uh, clearly, when Alzheimer described the case of Auguste Dietrich, he was looking at what we would call today palliative treatments, ways of keeping her from becoming so anxious and fearful, ways of organizing her thinking so that there was less paranoia and things like that. So as we go forward from there, the two key approaches that tended to emerge early on as far as medication uh, treatment of Alzheimer's disease and the dementias is concerned. Um, the, the two key approaches were stimulant medications and vasodilators. Now, stimulant medications, you know well, these are technically called um, noradrenergic agonists or something along those lines, and they would include things like Ritalin and Adderall and Focalin and, and many others that are used to treat ADHD. The thought in the 1960s and on into the 1970s was basically as follows. When you see this individual being non-interactive with the environment because of uh, whatever form of dementia is present, when you see this individual non-interactive and seemingly bored and uninvolved and detached, this could be a problem of lack of arousal or lack of mental alertness through the use of a stimulant medication, then the person would become mentally more alert and would become more interactive. Now, the research basically says that at times stimulant medications could be helpful in increasing the um, level of impairment of an individual, but by and large they were not a great aid in drug treatment for Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. The, the vasodilators are an interesting story. Vaso refers to the vascular system, and so a vasodilator is something that would expand or dilate a blood vessel, making more blood available to an area of the brain or some other organ of the body. There was a lot of interest in vasodilators, um, especially as we move from the 60s into the 70s because there were more cases of dementia. And the general wisdom at that time is that most cases of dementia in older individuals actually had the problem of cognition because of lack of circulation to the brain. The thought was then increasing flow of blood into the organ, the brain, into the relevant structures of the brain, there ought to be an improvement in the functioning of those brain areas. If lack of, of delivery of oxygen and glucose due to lack of circulation, if that was the key causative factor, then increasing circulation should ameliorate some of those symptoms. Well, of course, as uh, you've heard in earlier programs, 
One of the things that was discovered right about that time in the late 60s and early 70s is that most older individuals who have dementia actually had that dementia due to what we refer to as Alzheimer's disease, the microscopic changes that Alzheimer had described uh, what, 60-something years earlier than that. However, there were a couple of vasodilators, and one specifically, uh, one called hydrogen, that was interesting because it did seem to have some therapeutic benefit. Now, if vasodilation was the key, then anything that dilates blood vessels should be helpful. Uh, since this drug hydrogen seemed to be helpful in some cases in uh, controlled studies, then there must be some other property that hydrogen has that these others did not have. And so there developed from that thinking the idea that there would be certain metabolic or cognitive enhancers. You have to excuse the terminology because that's not crisp scientific thinking without evidence that either metabolism or cognition improves. But hydrogen was then considered as well to be a metabolic or cognitive enhancer. And there began in the late 70s and early 80s a lot of interest in developing other medications that would somehow through mechanisms that we really did not understand improve metabolism of brain cells and therefore improve cognitive functioning. Another one that got a lot of notice at that time was a, a substance called paracetam and there were a number of analogs, in other words we'll call them uh, first cousins of paracetam that were also tested to see whether they would be helpful with Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, there was no sustained evidence that any of these uh, so-called metabolic or cognitive enhancers would be helpful. Well, it was about that time in the mid-70s when the cholinergic deficit of Alzheimer's disease was identified. This means that a specific neurotransmitter called acetylcholine was found to be markedly deficient in Alzheimer's disease. And since acetylcholine is the neurotransmitter that is a real key role player with respect to memory systems, and since memory problems were pretty reliably the earliest symptom of Alzheimer's disease and many other dementias, it was felt that increasing the activity somehow through a medication, increasing the activity of acetylcholine would be helpful. So um, this takes us up now to the mid-1970s, and we will take a break in just a minute here, but when we come back from the break, I will talk with you about what medications now available arose from that discovery of the cholinergic deficit and the identification of substances which would increase cholinergic activity. So stay with us. We are going to go to a break, and when we return, we will talk more about cholinergic systems in the brain. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. 
The Gray Matter System provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking about a quote by the very respected Dr. Jeffrey Cummings, who said, The dramatic message is that Alzheimer's disease drug development is in a disastrous state and we have to change this. Very powerful statement and a statement with which I agree most heartedly. And so uh, before the break, I have been going through the history of drug development thus far for Alzheimer's disease and the other dementias. And here's my reasoning. Sometimes to know where you are going, it's helpful to consider where you've been and put everything into the appropriate context. So right now I'm reviewing where we've been and what it's gotten us and then I will go to uh, current approaches to drug treatment. Now we were talking about the discovery first published in 1976 actually that there was a marked deficiency of these neurons that used acetylcholine, abbreviated ACH, as the neurotransmitter. We knew that many of these neurons were very critically involved in memory functioning, and we knew that, uh, of course, memory difficulties were the earliest deficit of Alzheimer's disease and many other dementias as well. What we also knew at that time in the, in the mid-1970s is this, that if you administered uh, 
a medication that increased the activity of ACH or acetylcholine, you could produce a temporary improvement in memory in that individual. Now, the medication in question there was something called physostigmine. And uh, the problem with physostigmine is that it's a relatively unstable compound. It had to be injected subcutaneously. And then another medication had to be used to block its effects on the autonomic nervous system, um, where it would have the effect of slowing heart rate and things like that. So... Um, Using physostigmine was not at all clinically practical, but it was possible with human subjects to verify that increasing ACH activity resulted in improvement in memory. And I uh, had the the uh, a privilege of being involved in some of those early uh, evaluations of patients that had been given physostigmine, and I was impressed that it did have an effect, not a a dramatic effect, but a significant effect, and that that would hold some progress in the long run that good could come from that. The problem is, how could we then develop a medication that would increase this ACH activity, and uh, uh, specifically that was through inhibiting an enzyme that breaks ACH down, and how could we develop that medication that would be acceptable to a human being that would have acceptable risks and that could be taken orally. And so there was a lot of attention to that particular issue, and there was a drug that uh, was known as THA. The abbreviation was THA, tetrahydroaminoacridine. This is a drug that would do the same thing that physostigmine did as far as increasing ACH activity in the brain, but it would do it without the horrendous side effects on the autonomic nervous system and especially the the nausea and vomiting that would occur with something like physostigmine. So that drug... Uh, THA was developed, and that actually became a medication known as Tacrin, T-A-C-R-I-N. And Tacrin actually has the um, award for being the first medication that was approved by the FDA for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. The uh, brand name that was used was Cognex, C-O-G-N-E-X. So we had now Tacrin or Cognex available, and needless to say, there was a lot of of excitement. This was the first time that anything was available that would influence this particular system, cholinergic system, and also would be shown to re result in improvements in memory. So it went through the phase two, phase three uh, FDA trials and eventually was approved for use in human beings. Now, Tacron had some side effects that were not desirable, but in the meantime, other um, pharmaceutical companies were developing medications that would have a similar effect, and that gave rise to the the next one in the sequence, which is Donepazil, the generic name for Aricept. Aricept was actually developed in Japan, and the rights to it were purchased by Pfizer Pharmaceutical in the United States, and they distributed it, and it has now uh, become generic. And there are mounds of research to demonstrate that uh, Donepazil does slow the rate of decline when you compare groups of individuals with 
mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, taking donepezil, two groups of individuals with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease taking a placebo. So there was good evidence that this medication could be helpful. And in fact, there was one particular study that demonstrated in uh, that sample that the use of donepezil actually delayed nursing home placement on the average by 18 months. And so that not only hold, would hold the promise that um, the medication would result in a longer period of time of functioning well, but it also potentially could result in marked savings of um, uh, state and federal dollars because of the delayed need for nursing home placement in those who would eventually go to a nursing home. So we had those two medications and then rivastigmine became available and then Exelon um, became available and also became available in the form of a transdermal patch, a skin patch that's changed once daily and it's available in three different doses. So we now have available from this category the um, the second generation drug which was donepezil and then rivastigmine and um, Exelon. So um, with those three, the hopefully the capability of producing therapeutic benefit for Alzheimer's disease would be realized. And again, the primary therapeutic benefit was not an improvement in the level of functioning, although at times that was seen, but the primary benefit was that it would delay the rate of progression. It would delay how fast the patient became worse. It did not eliminate the disease. It did not stop the progression of the disease. Um, it did not remove beta amyloid or neurofibrillary tangles from the brain, but it simply allowed the brain to use what neurons it had left that were cholinergic in nature to use those neurons with a greater level of efficiency. And so they were very significant contributions to our care. They continue to be used very routinely today. Another medication became available uh, also around this time, and this had a, a very different uh, pharmacological um, effect, and it is called an NMDA receptor antagonist. NMDA is a type of receptor in the brain that can become overstimulated uh, by its neurotransmitter, which was GABA. So let me straighten out all this alphabet soup here for a minute. NMDA is the name of a receptor. A receptor is a structure that, that resides on a neuron that reacts to the neurotransmitter that is, synapt that is secreted into the synapse. Okay, GABA is a neurotransmitter, I'm sorry, uh, not GABA, glutamate. Glutamate is an amino acid, I was incorrect in saying GABA. Glutamate is an amino acid that can serve as a neurotransmitter in the brain and that under certain conditions can become excitotoxic. It will overstimulate that receptor to the point that the cell dies. So by blocking that NMDA receptor, the excessive stimulation by glutamate was regulated downward and the medication that was um, made available to do that is the one that we refer to as Namenda, N-A-M-E-N-D-A. Namenda is orally administered and has been a twice-a-day medication until just recently when an XR form has become available. 
So we now have two different pharmacologic approaches. Each of these is called a symptomatic approach. What that means is it's not altering the disease process, but it simply is allowing the, the brain to function um, as well as it possibly can, given the biological limits that are being placed on it by the uh, disease state that is progressing. So we have then the cholinergic enhancing drugs that I mentioned, and then the NMDA receptor blocking agent. And there was further research that in moderate stages, the uh, the uh, combination of a cholinergic drug and Namenda would actually be superior in its effect to the use of either one of these individually. The argument then became, well, should everybody with early Alzheimer's disease be given one of these cholinergic drugs and Namenda? And essentially the conventional wisdom now is this, that you want to get started on the cholinergic drug as early as possible. This is why there's so much concern about early identification. But Namenda may have counteractive or negative effects early on and probably should not be added until the person moves into the moderate stages of dementia. So right now, we have these four medications, given that Cognex or Tacrin, the first one that was developed, is no longer utilized because of the side effects. We have these four medications to choose from, three from one category, one from the other, the cholinergic drug useful in early Alzheimer's disease, and then addition of the drug Namenda being the appropriate thing to do as the individual moves into moderate stages of the disease. So, this being the state of the art, really over the last 10 years or so, we now will have to turn our attention to advances in some of the very basic neurosciences to get an understanding of what we are trying to accomplish with the drugs that are being tested out now. The only ones approved uh, by FDA are the, uh, uh, the cholinergic enhancing drugs and the NMDA receptor antagonist. So we are going to go to a break. And when we return from the break, we'll talk about now what approaches are being taken and why they are uh, felt uh, potentially useful and why uh, we think they're not being useful so far. So stay with us. We will go to a short break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. 
The Gray Matter System provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for being with us as we go into our third segment, and I appreciate your interest in this area and hope that our discussion is educational and helpful to you as you consider this interface between the political world and the scientific world, the science Uh, presents what it has to offer. The political system allocates resources because politics is really nothing more than allocation of limited resources based on a set of priorities. We have talked about the medications that um, did not pan out early on with Alzheimer's disease, the stimulant medications, the vasodilators, the metabolic or cognitive enhancers, and we then talked about the two classes of medications that are now approved um, for use with Alzheimer's disease, the acetylcholine-enhancing drugs and the NMDA receptor antagonist that we call Namenda. Now, to understand what approaches we're taking at this point, we have to understand the difference between symptomatic treatment and modifying a disease state. Symptomatic treatment means that a medication is being used that hopefully will result in some improvement in the symptoms of a condition, even though that medication does not actually alter the disease process that's taking place. So what we have with Namenda, with the cholinergic enhancing drugs, these are symptomatic treatments. They have an effect on brain cell function, and these effects seem to be therapeutic in terms of delaying the rate of progression, but they tend to have um, uh, no effect on our basic understanding of the disease process right now. So let's go back to the disease process. Alzheimer described what he referred to at that time as senile plaques, which then became known in the 1970s and 80s as neuritic plaques, meaning that they're plaques that are formed in brain tissue, and, um, and more recently have become known as beta amyloid plaques. Beta amyloid is an abnormal protein that clumps together that makes these plaques. So let's talk a little bit about amyloid. Amyloid is a naturally occurring and very necessary substance in the body. Now, amyloid is a protein, and I would say, first of all, that building a a set of proteins is not 
that different from cooking a meal in the kitchen. The right ingredients have to be in place at the right time, in the right concentrations, and under the right conditions to produce either um, the right set of proteins that the body will use or a wonderful meal that the body will use. With beta am with amyloid, the the right enzymes have to be present in the right environment so that amyloid can do its magic in the body and do it successfully. If the amyloid encounters a couple of um, detrimental enzymes, and these are uh, beta secretase enzymes, uh, then rather than forming the correct amyloid structure, it forms an abnormal protein structure, which we refer to as beta amyloid. So it's a, a, uh, an abnormal structure of the basic amyloid protein. Well, uh, this is what Alzheimer discovered, and we learned a lot about amyloid and its development and its abnormal development, especially in the 1990s and in the, two, uh, the decade and a half since that time. And so the thought was, all right, if amyloid, if beta amyloid clumps called plaques are creating these problems, let's do what we can to either get rid of the beta amyloid plaques or prevent the amyloid from developing in the beta form in the first place, and so uh, or prevent the plaques from forming. Now, when I use the plaques here, that has no relationship to what we think of in terms of plaques in arteries. So put that model out of your mind for a second and understand that the um, Beta amyloid plaques are microscopic in structure, and they result from clumping together of these abnormal proteins. So, several different approaches have been tried. The enzyme beta secretase uh, can be inhibited with certain experimental drugs. Another enzyme necessary for producing this abnormal protein, gamma secretase, can be inhibited based on our understanding from um, basic laboratory research. So if we use a beta secretase inhibitor or gamma secretase inhibitor, something that will inhibit the activities of these, then they can't produce that abnormal form uh, that we call beta amyloid, and therefore the amyloid can't have its detrimental effects in the brain. Another approach that could be taken would be to get a substance into the brain that would somehow cause these plaques to uh, be eliminated from the brain. Or one other approach would be, while the beta amyloid may be formed, a medication could be used to keep the beta amyloid from clumping together to form the plaques in the first place. And so there have been a number of drug studies with medications that in animal preparations clearly inhibit the development of this abnormal amyloid, inhibit the clumping together of the abnormal protein, or wash the, uh, the plaques out of the brain. As these went to phase two and phase three clinical trials, unfortunately, and to the chagrin of many scientists, they simply were not helpful in improving symptoms of individuals 
with Alzheimer's disease when they were studied in the classic types of group studies that the FDA would require. I don't need to tell you how big a disappointment that had been because a lot of people had gotten on the beta amyloid wagon and saw beta amyloid as being a key culprit in the um, development and progression of Alzheimer's disease. Well, and we can see now retrospectively that there are a couple of potential problems. One is while the beta amyloid clumps together and forms these plaques, we do not know whether that's a result of some other disease process, whether that is simply some kind of a side effect of the whole process, or whether that actually is causing brain cells to degenerate. There is not clear evidence at this point that beta amyloid or beta amyloid plaques actually cause nerve cells, neurons, and nerve cells in the brain. There's no evidence that these substances cause brain cells to die. So that sort of leaves us hanging about what exactly the role of beta amyloid and beta amyloid plaques actually are in the disease process. A lot of effort was putting, was put into managing beta amyloid in the brain. Unfortunately, it's not been successful. And there uh, have been some suggestions in the research that it was somewhat detrimental, suggesting that perhaps beta amyloid was the neuron's attempt to protect itself from some other disease process. Just a possibility, not verified by any means. We then turn our attention to the other key microscopic finding in Alzheimer's disease, and that's the tau protein, T-A-U. Tau protein is a protein that lives on the axon, the long process that comes off the body of the neuron and that um, has the role of carrying a neurotransmitter and other substances from the cell body on down to the end of the neuron so that the uh, neurotransmitter can be secreted into the synapse. So we have this tau protein that sort of manages what a lot of people like to refer to as the railroad tracks, the transport mechanisms up and down the axon. And we have learned again since the 1990s primarily that this tau protein can become hyperactivated and when it becomes hyperactivated it somehow either becomes destruct destructive or facilitates a destructive process that results in the um, degeneration and death of the neuron and when that happens pieces of tau protein and also possibly of these railroad tracks in the axon begin to intertwine with each other and that becomes what we call the neurofibrillary tangle. Alzheimer described two things, the plaques and the tangles. Well, these are, these are the tangles and this is essentially how those tangles develop. Well, it has been much more difficult to come up with substances that will impact on the tau protein in a protective way and so we are limited thus far in the the um, evaluation of drugs that may affect the tau protein that there continues to be some hope there but uh, there is limited progress right now in that area and one of the reasons for that is there is not a good animal model for how tau protein becomes hyperactivated what causes it to um, um, become involved in the death process of the neuron and what causes it to tangle together. We have an animal model 
for beta amyloid and this animal model is the, it actually in the form of mo, um, genetically modified mice that produce a lot of beta amyloid. Now there are those in the research world that say that's our Alzheimer's disease model, but I contend that it could not possibly be for at least two reasons. One is there are no neurofibrillary tangles, there are only beta amyloid plaques, and secondly the memory of a mouse is very different from the memory of a human being. And Alzheimer's disease does not occur naturally in mice. Therefore, it's a limited animal model, uh, limited only to understanding of how in that genetically altered organism, beta amyloid works. Um, we don't have an animal model for tau protein right now, but certainly attempts are being made in that area. So what other approaches are being used right now? We know that there's a very significant inflammatory response in the brain among neurons, and there have been attempts at using various inflammatory uh, anti-inflammatory medications, some currently available, some experimental, to see whether these medications might actually uh, inhibit the progression of Alzheimer's disease in individuals. There are also protective agents that are being considered, and one that you all are very familiar with for reasons that are beyond my very simple understanding, estrogen has a very significant neuroprotective component. This is why there's been a lot of interest in hormone replacement therapy and the development of Alzheimer's disease, and I can only tell you that better brains than mine are investigating that, and the more they look, the more confusing it becomes, but there does seem to be some protective effect if estrogen is available at the right time through, for example, the menopausal process. Um, the other area that's being looked at most intensively has more to do with basic metabolism. Uh, many of you have heard Alzheimer's referred to as diabetes type 3. Well, that I don't feel that that really fits very accurately. However, given that diabetes, among other things, is a problem of metabolism, and given that metabolic problems certainly are present in Alzheimer's disease as brain cells degenerate, then potentially it would be possible to interfere in a positive way with the metabolic process and result in some improvement. To that end, the um, uh, medical food axona, AXONA, was developed to provide a ketone substrate so that these uh, neurons did not have to metabolize glucose. Glucose metabolism in the brain had become very inefficient due to the disease, and while a ketone is normally less efficient, in Alzheimer's it seemed more efficient. Therefore, Axona has had some therapeutic benefit in very early Alzheimer's disease. So these are the main hypotheses that are being tested out now. We are going to go to a break shortly, and when we return, I'm going to discuss two things. One is, why do we keep meeting with failure, and number two is what kind of things can be done that would hopefully take what seems to some like a bottomless pit of research investment and turn it into positive benefits the way that has been accomplished with other diseases. So we're going to go to break. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? 
What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. We are back for our fourth and final segment. Thank you for staying with us. And we are talking about the uh, disappointments in drug development thus far for treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Many years ago, I was talking to a park ranger who worked at Carlsbad Caverns. And um, she was talking about the kinds of questions that people ask when they are given tours of the caverns and things like that. Now, the Carlsbad Caverns are, are a very large set of caverns. And one of the questions that was asked that she had to laugh at was this. How many undiscovered caverns are there in Carlsbad Caverns? And so you can see very quickly that if, they're, if the caverns are not discovered, you don't know that they're there. And therefore, you don't know how many undiscovered caverns there are. But this has relevance to the problem that we are addressing with respect to Alzheimer's disease. We're pleased with what we know in terms of how beta amyloid develops, the hyperphosphorylation or hyperactivation of tau protein and things like that. But what we don't know is how many undiscovered caverns there still are in our understanding of Alzheimer's disease. We don't know how much we don't know about this disease. We have a couple of items 
items of information, we have some other related things, such as the role that glial cells play. Glial is G-L-I-A-L. And these are cells that traditionally have been thought to be pretty inactive as far as processing of information and things like that are concerned. But they were thought to just sort of live in the cell, in the brain to provide structure, to lay down a, a sort of a lining on axons, a lining called myelin and uh, to manage the chemical environment. Well, there's more recent information that suggests that certain glial cells may have a key role in how rich the connections are between cells in a cellular network and, um, and therefore may be able to directly influence the production of a lot of connections between cells or only a small number of connections between cells. So, you know, that's more recent information and it's interesting. But one of the big challenges with Alzheimer's disease, other than not knowing how much undiscovered information there is there, uh, one of the big problems that we have is that it's a progressive course that lives in the brain for many, many years before symptoms show up and that progresses slowly. So in order to identify effectiveness of something that would uh, result in Alzheimer's disease, uh, we would have to have a projection for how this person would be doing if there were not some type of an uh, experimental intervention. If someone, let's say that we have an arbitrary 1 to 10 rating for Alzheimer's disease, 1 being very, very minimal impairment, 10 being very severe impairment. If someone is at a level 3 impairment, we don't know whether they will be at level 6 later that year or seven or eight years later. And if we can't answer that question, then it makes it very difficult for us to answer the question of whether a hypothetical medication or an experimental drug would cause that person to delay even longer. If you don't know how long they're going to delay before progressing to a certain level, then you don't know whether you've been able to prolong that except in large group studies. Now, here's the problem with large group studies. We talk of Alzheimer's disease as if it were a single disease. I think that in all likelihood, what we're seeing in the neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease can take different pathways to get to that final expression. We know that clinically, one case can be very different from another. We know that some cases have certain uh, molecular genetic indicators um, and others do not. And so we know neuropathologically as well as clinically that one case of Alzheimer's disease may take a very different course from another case of Alzheimer's disease. As a result, if you if you put several hundred people together and you have a drug that would only affect people with one specific genetic marker, let's say, or one specific clinical identifier, if those are the only ones that are going to be positively affected, the results will be washed out when you look at the group of several hundred people that have taken the proposed experimental med medication. So it's very possible that we're not seeing uh, therapeutic benefits so far because any therapeutic benefit that may be derived from these medications in some individuals may actually um, be washed out in the large group analysis. So there is much increase in interest in what are referred to as biomarkers, chemical or genetic or other types of indicators, biological indicators that 
will give us a better idea of what subset or subtype of Alzheimer's disease this person may have. In reality, we are not yet able to address the question of why Parkinson's disease involves degeneration in its pathways, um, why a Lewy body disorder results in degeneration in its pathways and Alzheimer's disease in its pathways. There would seem to be some common element there, and we really do not have much of an understanding of that thus far. But anyway, how do we go from here? Well, one of the things that has to be done is continued attempts to standardize the methods and methodology of the different studies so that we can be certain that the studies are being done the same way. And yet we want to accomplish that without discouraging, dis discouraging creativity in individual researchers. So each study has to be an exact replication of other studies with some more creative component added. The second thing is a movement toward more collaborative relationships among multiple drug companies and the Food and Drug Administration. And there is movement in this area now. The difficulty is a drug company has a great deal of money invested in a drug. They don't want to reveal their secrets and compromise their ability to recover their very intensive research and development expenditures. And so there has to be a mechanism probably managed or monitored by FDA that will allow this degree of collaboration. Um, the third thing is we have to be careful to not constrict our views and considerations only to the beta amyloid and the neurofibrillary tangles. We need to develop better animal models with respect to the degenerative process, the cellular death process, for example. And again, this will give rise to more and more effective uh, biomarkers, including genetic. And then the fourth thing, there absolutely has to be increased funding of basic research. As HIV infection went from being a death sentence to a chronic condition that has to be managed only because of the research money that was poured into it, um, I would hope and would expect and would anticipate that increased expenditures in basic research would provide for more tools for um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry to be able to develop the types of substances that might actually intervene with the disease progress. So, bottomless pit, I don't think that we can afford to look at it as a bottomless pit right now. You know, the costs of Alzheimer's disease today are tremendous. The projected costs by the year 2050 boggle the imagination. So this is not something that we can afford to stand by. The American research community, American ingenuity has demonstrated the ability to overcome very stubborn, very complex diseases successfully, and I believe that it can happen here, but it has to be done as economically as possible. So this is my position on our opening question, and I hope that the discussion has been helpful. Whether you are touched by Alzheimer's disease somewhere in your life or not, you are a voter, and these are things for you to keep in mind when you vote for elected officials. Thank you for joining us today. I hope the information has been helpful, and I look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you for listening to Neuro Matters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.